0: yeah go ahead this is kaiser cast episode 25 today we are going to be talking to a fellow powder coater um, they're out from the East Coast and uh, just got into powder coating in the last year or so they do some fabrication as well and they uh, had seen some of our videos on on social media and they reached out to us via email and just asked if we could answer some questions. And we said, yeah, let's let's uh, set it up for a podcast and let's just talk about it. Um, they just have some questions about just kind of getting into powder coating. And um, so we'll kind of evaluate what kind of experience that they have and what kind of setup they have and just kind of see see what, what help that they we could give them or any tips um, that we could give them just based on our experience. It can be pretty generalized because um, so, we're gonna try to make it uh, helpful for anybody that's listening. You know, we may get into a few specifics on, on some stuff that we think could be helpful for everybody, but, um, for the most part, we're going to try to keep it kind of general. This is, uh, like I said, episode 25 It's the first one of kind of like this season. We have kind of fallen into the pattern of where we just record in the fall. It seems like that's when people are most available to, uh, talk to us. Um, most of the rest of the year, everybody is very busy and we understand that. And, uh, so are we, so it works pretty good. Uh, we're right at the end of September. We're going to try to record through October and November. Um, and maybe a little bit December, but, but maybe not also, because usually by that time, the holidays, um, kind of keep everybody tied up and it's hard to, to get people on here, but it's been a while since, uh, we recorded anything. I'm excited to, uh, do it again. We got a lot of good guests coming up, um, that we've wanted to get on. For a while and it's kind of all of the areas of, of powder coating pre-treatment the actual powder coating reps of the powder itself some equipment reps in terms of um, pre-treatment equipment and also ovens so well, we're really looking forward to it and we also have uh, another a couple more guests lined up that are just also powder coaters throughout the united states to just give you know their input ask questions if they want or we may be asking some questions of them to try to learn some things One of the things that I wanted to talk about, uh, just kind of opening here was we posted on social media about a picture of some parts that had cotton stuck in it. And basically how that happened was in the late summer of Nebraska, we have in our area, we have a lot of cottonwood trees and the cotton starts flying like crazy. Almost like it's snowing some days. And so when we're in the middle of summer and it's really, really hot, we usually have the roll-up doors open and the powder coating chop because it gets so hot in there, we try to keep air movement for the guys because when it's 100 degrees outside, it's usually a little bit hotter than that in the shop because we have the ovens going and they put off a lot of heat. So we're moving carts in and out of the oven of cured powder-coated parts. And right when you pull them out of the oven, they're very hot and the powder is still sticky a little bit like if you had a glove on so you wouldn't burn your hand and you just went to grab a part your glove would actually stick to it because the powder is still kind of sticky and gooey once it starts to cool down even just a little bit then that stickiness goes away and it's starting to be a hard cool finish so right when you pull it out of the oven it kind of has a little bit of that stickiness to it we had the roll-up doors open and it just so happened all of a sudden at that point in the day, the cotton really started flying like crazy, and a lot of it swept into the shop, and boom, landed on a cart of parts that just came out of the oven. So they were just full of cotton. And so at that point, it's just stuck in there. It's actually kind of like down-melted in a little bit into the powder coating. So in order to make that look good, we had to go through and rework all that, sand it all back down, and recoat it. That was a real bummer. Probably one of our low points of the summer actually in terms of how much rework that took and how far that set us back in terms of our production schedule and in the middle of the summer when it's really really hot it just makes everything harder and you know we get everybody in the shop gets frustrated easier and rework is always frustrating and especially on that scale that much of it it was something that really i mean it was within our control but at the same time, kind of out of our control and kind of a something that only happens every once in a while. So that made it even all the more frustrating. So now we're just going to go ahead and bring in this fellow powder coater. I think they got their whole team uh, sitting in a room somewhere. And we're going to give them a call. They actually have the guys that are doing the work out on the floor that can give really direct input. And they have some very specific questions about their equipment and what they're doing. And we're going to see if we can help them.
1: Thank you, guys, for taking some time. Of course. Sorry we had to push it back. Things got kind of crazy this month. Oh, trust me. We understand. Yeah. I um, I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and your company um, and how you found us and um, what we're doing here today. So we are actually an awning company out of
2: Virginia. Um, My husband and I just purchased the company back in October of 2021. He had been working there for about seven years prior, and um, the previous owner was ready to get out, and so we kind of stepped in. Um, The powder coating side of it wasn't really utilized really that much. It was basically just used for um, our own, you know, framework for our awnings and stuff like that. So once we took over, we realized, you know, there's such a huge possibility with that um, to go even further. So we've been trying to, you know, build that and grow that side of the business um, and get that off the ground. And then we kind of found you guys through Willie here, who's our um, welder. Um, He was already following you guys and we just started watching y'all's videos and, and posts and stuff. And that's why I ended up reaching out to you. I figured it could, you know, couldn't hurt to reach out to somebody who, you know, is obviously well-established in the powder coating business and industry that, you know, if he could kind of give us some pointers.
3: How did he find us? Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's a powder coating company as well. And um, when I had questions for him, he just gave me a couple people to follow, and yours was one of them. That's I listened to some of the things you had and I listened to a couple of your podcasts. And I told Laura, Hey, this is probably somebody we could reach out to to maybe get some information.
0: That's cool.
1: That's great. I actually, so we don't know him personally, but we do interact with him quite a bit online. So that's, that's lovely. We'll have to thank him for that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Ben's a good guy, man. I've known Ben now for about six years and um, he's, he's a good guy.
1: He's been a huge help to us last year. That's great. So, Laura, were you involved with the company before this, or is this all new to you now? This is all new to me.
2: Um, I've had to learn
1: awnings
2: and cutter coating and anything and everything in between. Um, so, I used to run a vet clinic, actually. So, yes, definitely not, definitely not in my realm. So, I've learned a lot this last year.
1: So, you've got kind of like the administrative scheduling kind of brain... Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I okay. do that, but everything else. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that's awesome. Okay. Well um, then I guess if we just want to jump right in here, what would you like to talk about first? Oh boy. Um. So one of his, so Mason here
2: is pretty much heading up our, our powder coating side of it right now. And one of our biggest things is pre-treatment cleaning I know I can't even. I do it, but, um we're we're not sure the previous owners had kind of like their own thing going and I felt like it wasn't really safe the way we were doing it. So we kind of stopped the treatment and so we're trying to find alternatives to make it more um not so much environmentally friendly but you know our employees safe <laughs> safety wise. <laughs> Um, so they had, we have like a full like phosphate machine, but there's not a good like area for us to be using it, to be honest. And that was more of a safety concern for me is, you know, if people are breathing that in and I don't know, that was my issue. So we're, we're kind of struggling, I think more with that process. So if, if there's any like recommendations or, we are open. I mean, we're, we're trying to get as much information as possible to be the most efficient and safe, you know, process
3: as possible.
0: Yeah, definitely. So pre-treatment is extremely important for powder coating, even though uh, there's probably a lot of people that don't even do it at all. Um, But like, if your parts aren't clean, you know, first of all, powder coating won't stick, but then also if you're using the right pre-treatment chemicals, you can actually get better adhesion because you're leaving a coating behind before you powder coat. Um, okay. So we... Uh, I noticed that you use uh, Prep 59 because um, I think you sent me a picture of that or something.
2: Yeah, and so that's, that's what we were using. Yeah, but and,
0: and so we use... Yeah. I was excited to see CalPrep because that's Calvary and that's all the chemicals we use is from Calvary. So okay. everything that I've learned about pre-treatment was from our original, uh, Calvary rep, Bill Townsend. And I actually called him about a month ago when you and I first connected, um, to see if he was familiar with the CalPrep59 cause we hadn't used it and he was. Um, so he got me up to speed on that. As far as, um, like how to go about pre-treatment from scratch. Um, first of all, you kind of need an area, like you said. So for us, we actually have like a room that we framed in and so like we push the parts in there on a cart and then we are able to close the door so then we can pre-treat in there. So it's like, like a wash bay or like something that you could drive your car in and wash it essentially, okay. um, because that kind of keeps everything condensed. Cause you're right. You don't necessarily want to be breathing in all the pre-treatment fumes uh, right. all day long and then all obviously there's water going everywhere and then you have mist and humidity. So you do kind of want to keep it contained. So like on the, on the most, the best case scenario would be to have like frame up your own room. And then like we put just uh, metal sheeting on like, what you would sheet the exterior of a building with that. You can get a Menards or, or roof, a building with the corrugated tin. That's what we put on the inside of, of our framed room. Um, if you don't have an area to actually make a room, um, then obviously you got to go a little more makeshift. I mean, you could put up tarps and things, I guess. Um, but then it also kind of depends on how, <laughs> <He's been
2: there. laughs>
0: how it depends on how serious you want to go with the pretreatment. So if you go all out and you make a room, you can get a um, pressure washer that's meant for pre-treatment for coatings. Um, and so it's, it's, a manual pressure washer that you hold in your hand, similar to like what you'd wash your car with at a manual car wash. But instead of soap coming through with the water, there's chemical coming through. Um, and there's a company called, uh, P E M and mm-hmm. they sell pressure washers and those are the brand that we use. Um, but if you're doing something like that, you probably need a fully enclosed room cause you got a lot of pressure, there's a lot of water, a lot of mist. Um, but that would probably be the. The most sophisticated, the the highest step up in terms of manual pre-treatment, but then you could also do something that was you know like lower pressure, so you could do something out of a garden sprayer if you wanted to. Uh, obviously, you're gonna have to be constantly mixing chemical because every time your two gallon garden sprayer runs out, then you gotta remix your water and chemical, so that's can right. be painful. Um, yeah, we have a, a low pressure setup. Uh, because since we're a job shop, we do really big things. So the big pressure washer works good for that. But we also do thousands of little tiny pieces that are super, super light. And so doing, using really high pressure on those, it just makes them fly around and fall off the cart. So we have a, a low pressure option, um, that I was, I've been thinking about kind of making it so it's a little bit more portable and being able to like so people could buy it from us because it's just a ton of different parts and pieces that I've gathered and got put together and it works really, really well. Um, so that's something that, that, uh, probably would work for your guys' application. But then also you can go all the way down to just doing pre-treatment by hand. Um, there'd be a lot of people that would, that are experts, I guess in the powder coating industry that would say that, no, you can't do it by hand and that's not a good idea, but, it's also better than nothing. So um, it just kind of depends on what you guys want to do. I I assume you probably, you want to make do with what you have. So is there at least like an area in the shop that you could do it? As long as we weren't using significant amounts of volume of chemical, um, you probably wouldn't have too bad of an issue with like the smell and things like that
2: yeah we do have the space to wall off an area, and that is definitely something that we've talked about doing um so that is definitely a possibility for the
3: for the future and far as I have two questions for you one what p a what p pressure do you guys use when you pressure wash when you say high pressure what do you oh, that, what do you like
0: a typical pressure washer is around like three thousand three thousand three thousand
3: p s i so it's okay I have like a big huge crazy hundred, like a ten thousand or something like that.
0: No, it's not 10,000 PSI. It goes up to about 1,000 or 3,000 PSI max. And at at the end of the wand, it's probably a little less because we generally use a little bit bigger tips. So that way it actually cuts the pressure back a little bit. Because again, if the parts are just blowing around like crazy, it's not really helping.
3: Right, yeah. But I just didn't know what you did on your bigger stuff too. Did you ever find that the high pressure water was an easier solution than say like sandblasting or something like that?
0: so the higher pressure that you go when you're pre-treating it, it's just going to be able to remove greases and oils faster but you're not necessarily going to impart any um, profile on the metal so um, yeah, that's- blasting is going to always give you an actual profile
3: exactly. and so
0: so really there's probably comes a point where you more pressure in the pressure wand with water is just not really that helpful it, i guess it would yeah. just maybe clean a little bit faster if you had a, a ton of pressure like you know there's some pressure washers where you could like cut through a two by four or something but
3: that's probably, that's
0: probably probably excessive and then also dangerous if somebody you know yeah takes the wand across their foot on accident
3: you know that would not be good yeah, okay. all right and then another thing i had is um far as like epa or can you just put in like maybe like a two by two exhaust fan through a wall and we just tarp off an area would that be good enough for just pulling out for now or is that like a so you have to,
0: no- you'd have to check on um, just some like what the regulations are in your area um, okay. but it's not going to be extremely significant chemical that's uh, chemical vapor that's coming out of the wash bay so um, if you have a room that's walled off yes you're probably gonna need some sort of fan mostly because of the humidity and mist if you're using high pressure the whole room is going to fill up with humidity and mist, and you're not going to be able to see, so you do need some sort of fan. Um, but the amount of chemical vapor that's in the air is, is even though you can smell it, it's it's very, very little, meaning it's not necessarily going to, once it condenses on the fan or all the water droplets are somewhere, it's not there's not hardly any chemical left in it, if that makes sense. So you should be able to, but I don't want to say all 100%.
3: Yeah. Yeah, the smell is very misleading. It'll fill the whole shop and it just feels like you're suffocating. In it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, we know we're not, but that's just kind of what it smells like sometimes.
0: Well, yeah, it's possible. So, what's the exact setup you're using? Because maybe it's just getting used in a really high concentration, possibly.
3: Well, that was the old the old system. It's like a steamer set up in a steam machine that phos- uh, converted the phosphate to steam and water and it kind of like steamed it on the stuff.
0: Okay. So, in that particular case, for one, you don't want to do that because that's way too hot and it's getting way outside the range that phosphate is usable in. So it's not really doing anything. Um, but, but that's probably why it was getting so fumey because you're essentially boiling the chemical. Um, yeah. So then you're getting a lot of vapors off of it instead of just like, it's good to use a little bit of temperature. So with a uh, pre-treatment, you want to think time temperature and concentration. Bill Townsend right. always says that. So, time is how long you're spending on the part with water running across it and temperature is if you're ice cold it just doesn't clean as well as if you're like 100 to 120 degrees fahrenheit but if you're up to if you're up to boiling then that's way too hot because you're way beyond the, the chemistry uh limitations yeah. of the whatever pretreatment chemical you're using um, and then the concentration would just be like how much chemical ratio to water that you're using. It would really, de- it would be really hard to say what concentration you'd be getting out of the end of uh, a steam washer because it would depend on w- how much water was boiling off and how much chemical was boiling off. I would okay. assume probably most water was if it smelled really, really potent.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely at times it would smell really, really potent. And is
2: why we... I honestly just we stopped using it because right. it's just really I I didn't like the fact that we weren't really sure on yeah. it you know the, something just
3: felt wrong <laughs> it didn't
2: feel right exactly yeah it was just a gut instinct but we kind of all decided you know what let's not use this until we understand it fully so
0: yeah and and, and, and also with a with a steam washer which there are people out there that would uh, swear by them and say that that that's the only way to go but you're that's not You're not really getting any uh i would argue you're not really getting much contact time with the chemical even if you're you know like holding it and it's right at it and there's steam coming out there's in those washers when you're really at, at high temperature and it's mostly steam you're really not getting much water flow really so at that point you're really not putting that much chemical on the part right you're kind of essentially fogging the part if you will Um, it's not like you're running gallons of water across it. And so when we're talking about time temperature and concentration, the time portion is like contact time of the water chemical mixture running across the part itself. So you're probably going to need some sort of floor drain. Um, again, depending if you go with a full, like high pressure, um, pressure washer, you have several several gallons a minute of water you're using so then you have to have a floor drain to evacuate that and then you have to be able to um ha- be able to treat that water that that's going to the drain which right. i'm guessing you would am i correct with the steam washer there probably wasn't very much water i mean there was some water coming off but it probably yeah, was not gallons. some water coming there was
2: out some, but not much i opinion. mean not you know it's yeah. probably be like gallons on the floor
3: and that's
0: it right and so like with a high pressure wand I forget the exact, but I think it's between like five and six gallons a minute or something like that. It's probably more, probably more than that. Um, but then obviously you gotta have a floor drain. And so for us, since the buildings that we're in now, weren't like designed for having a wash bay or something in it, we had to like dig out where the drain was and re concrete. And so there's actually, we have a sump pump pits that it goes to first, which actually works really good because you can check your pH. In those pits, and then that will tell you, like, do I need to add some neutralizer or add some acid to make sure that the pH is correct when it's actually going to the like city water drain? Um, So, typically, the like neutral pH is seven. So, usually, as long as you're between like six and eight, it's fine. But again, like local um, water treatment facilities might have some different guidelines. Like they might actually want it to be eight or nine. They might want it to be more basic or possibly they want it to be five. They want it more acidic. Um, so that, that's that would be like just if you put up a room and you put up a exhaust fan, then the next thing is probably going to be kind of dealing with uh, the water and chemical that is going to be running on the floor essentially.
3: So we could literally put it into a tote and like a tote container and then check the pH on it so it's good enough that we can put it down in the system that's, that's cleared through our local county, right?
0: Correct. Yep. Yeah. And you also can do it by hand. So, um, and I think it's that's useful to talk about. I think doing it by hand would be better than nothing. But um, what do you? What uh, types of metal do you do mostly? Is it mostly steel or mostly aluminum? aluminum. We, do we do
2: both. We do both, but our all our awning frames are mainly aluminum. Okay. But... Yeah,
3: so steel lot. and aluminum. Yeah. We do a lot of shade cell posts, too, which are steel, just steel pipe. So we do both, aluminum and steel, really. Yeah,
2: I forgot the shade cell.
0: Yeah. Kind of so, yeah, so, I mean, I thank you that you mentioned that you used acetone a little bit, and then you're using the CalPrep 59, um, and I know maybe not currently that you aren't, but essentially, if you were going to do it by hand, um, You could wipe it down with acetone first so you're gonna have chemical gloves on you're gonna need a respirator it's gonna be somewhat smelly but it's gonna be kind of localized to that area of the shop so you could wipe either if it's steel or aluminum wipe it down with acetone um that's gonna be getting some of the greases and oils off probably not all of it but a decent amount and then
3: pretty much now yeah
0: the cal prep 59 um you could mix that to a little bit lesser concentration. So it's not necessarily hundred percent out of the five gallon pail that you buy it in. Um, but you could just dip a rag, clean rag into that and then you could wipe the part down in that particular case, since it's a phosphate, it would do, it would help you on steel. Um, and the CalPret 59 is designed to do a little bit of cleaning and then it'll leave phosphate behind. Um, that CalPret 59, It's very specific chemical and actually meant to it's, it's, um, older technology in terms of if you compare it to like what we're using from Calvary, but it was designed as like, you're going to wipe it on by hand. Essentially. Um, you wouldn't want to use that chemical through like a pressure washer, uh, because that's not designed to go through it and it won't build phosphate the correct way. Um, so you could just wipe your steel down with that. And again, that's going to clean it a little bit more and it's going to leave some phosphate behind. So when you're leaving phosphate coating behind, that's promoting adhesion. So powder coating will stick better to a phosphate coating that's already on the part than just directly to steel. Phosphate won't help at all on aluminum. So it would be the only thing that the CalPrep 59 would do on aluminum is to help just get a little bit more cleaning. Um, but it wouldn't like, Phosphate wouldn't uh, be creating an iron phosphate coating because you have to have iron to react with the phosphate to actually make a coating.
2: Okay, so based on what we've been researching, that's pretty much exactly what we found out. Um, do you have to rinse with water after you apply it by hand? Like, or do you just leave it, let it dry? With it, the would cal prep? Dep- it, it
0: would depend on the chemical um, in general, but for like this. P- very specific application, you should be able to just let it dry in place because you're. When you're wiping it, you're not necessarily getting a hundred percent coated everywhere anyway. And certain right. areas gonna have more, certain's gonna have less. So you probably be hurting yourself by wiping it down with water because it's not really fully pre-treated anyway. Because when you're doing it by hand, that. It's going to be uneven, but that's better than nothing. Also, no, so,
2: no, but but we've been having issues with unevenness, and because the previous owners, you know, kind of had their way of doing it, and you know, we were kind of just trying to go with that, but then we were finding some inconsistencies, so we were trying to figure out what they were, and I think that so may if, have been one of the issues. Is that we were
0: when you're saying that you're having watering. inconsistencies? Then was the why were you thinking that is the powder coating finish coming out bad or?
2: Well, it was kind of like flaking off. It wasn't being cleaned. And after it was being cleaned, it wasn't being looked at properly. Right. Properly. Like the, like prior, the process just clean. wasn't being done right. So we were definitely seeing a difference.
0: Yeah, typically um, if it's oh, going to be flaking off, it's probably just not clean to begin clean. with. It's, right. pro- it's probably exactly. not that too much phosphate was left behind. That would be pr- difficult to do by hand, I think. Okay. But as far as like doing it safely, in terms of like PPE, that's I think is important uh, in the wash bay. So since ours is fully enclosed and it has a fan in there, and a lot of what we're doing is a high pressure pressure washer, so there's a lot of mist. And if you're in there, you're gonna get wet basically. So our operators wear like rain pants, a rain jacket, um, a half face respirator with like good 3M cartridges on there. You can get those yep. from any 3m dealer and y'all can also purchase them off the internet um and then safety glasses and a face shield and chemical gloves some sort of chemical glove so usually we're the pretreatment treatment operator is 100 decked out in gear there's really no open skin available for chemical to get on it and that's not um that's not to say that if chemical got on your skin that's going to burn you immediately because it's not because typically you're using it in really small concentrations so if you're if you're going to mix it up in a garden sprayer or it's coming out of a pressure wand um you're usually going to be between like two and five percent meaning like if you have a hundred gallons of water or 99 gallons of water and one gallon of chemical that's one percent concentration so right okay and it'd be the same thing if you want to do it by hand you would just or a little, you know, you just mix in a separate bucket. uh You know, you wouldn't have a, you won't want to take the hundred percent concentrated Cal Prep fifty nine and dip a rag in it and just right. wiping it right. on the part. You wanna, want to get some water mixture in with it. So should we like just
2: power wash it, clean it real good, and then prep
0: it with the phosphate? Are we talking about your current setup, or are we talking like yeah. an ideal situation?
2: Well, I mean what's an ideal? Like, I mean, ideally,
0: I mean- you, ideally we would, um, if you had a, a wash bay and we were doing a high pressure washer, we would get a phosphate from Calvary. That's meant to go through a pressure washer. And we would be using that to clean and pretreat treat at the same time. Essentially. You, you could, okay. you could go more sophisticated and get like a degreasing chemical from Calvary. Um, that's so though all it does is help, emulsify the oils and get them off the part and you get them rinsed away and then you grab your other wand because usually the pressure washers from pem have two wands so you can have two different chemicals readily available and so then you after you degreased then you could go um, and do your iron phosphate if it was steel and that would start it would clean a little bit because typically they're formulated to have a little bit of cleaning to get any greases and oils um, gone and then it starts to build phosphate because it's you're using the phosphate itself. Um, if you're going to keep using like CalPret 59, which is designed to be by hand, then you wouldn't put that through the pressure wand. So you could just pressure wash it first. I don't know that it's going to really help getting it clean if you're just using water though. You know, what? you're going to need probably something in the pressure washer or some sort of degreasing chemical to help, um, start getting sure. rid of the oils.
3: What is your process when you're going to go do mild steel, when you're going to, when you're going to powder coat it, do you remove all the mill scale? Do you go to bare metal? What is y'all's yeah. method of doing that?
0: Okay. So we get, have, we'd have two options to start with. So if the customer has raw steel that they're bringing to us, I'll usually ask, right. do you want it blasted first? Nine times out of 10, they say no, because they don't want the added extra cost. But if we blast it at first, then we're blasting all the way down to near white metal. So we have really, right. really good clean steel with a good profile. There's no mill scale left and there's really no grease and oil left. The other side would be um, that we're not. And that is the best,
3: right? Wouldn't that be the best way to always do it that way? You're correct.
0: Can? Yes, yes, you're correct. And so if you have a piece of blasted steel and it's blasted well, then we hang out on a cart, it goes into the wash bay and we just do iron phosphate right away. Cause there's really no greases and oils left on it. So you are, you're immediately building phosphate. Um, and then our phosphate that we use is formulated to just dry in place. So it's this blasted phosphate and then goes into the oven and dries off. So that's very quick pre-treatment on blasted steel. If it's non-blasted, if it's super, super oily and greasy, we'll degrease it first meaning we'll grab our wand that's the high pressure wand that is hooked up to degreaser and we'll hit it with degreaser first and that's usually a little more sudsy kind of soapy looking when it's going on um, and it's it, it's a high ph chemical more basic because that mixes well with organics and oils that are on the part and helps get those lifted off the part and rinsed away and then The uh, pressure wands from PEM have a little plunger, so you then you can just switch over and have only water. So your second step is just rinsing it with water, getting rid of all the degreaser, and hopefully most of the grease and oils are going off with the degreaser. And then the third step is iron phosphate out of your pressure wand. Um, And again, usually the iron phosphates are formulated so that... um, It'll have a little bit of cleaning in it still to get a little bit of the grease and oils that are still left gone. And then it starts building an iron phosphate coating. Um, And then we just would let it dry in place. There are a lot of companies and a lot of phosphates that you can get that they'll say you have to rinse that. You can't let it dry in place. So then you have to listen to what they're saying because they formulated it a specific way. But the one that we use, it just dries in place. Okay. I would recommend sticking with Calvary. We that's the only chemical we yeah that's the only chemical we've ever used, um, but it we've never had any problems with it, and it it does really really well in all the uh, sophisticated testing that we've had to do for some of the projects that we work on.
3: So when you do projects like this for different customers, you let them know, hey, look, powder. I mean, uh, sandblasting is definitely better, but if you don't want to pay for it, you know, it's just going to be less quality. Or how do you go about that? Yeah. But-
0: correct so our business is uh, probably 90 percent. we're dealing with a lot of industrial companies they're steel fabricators i guess similar to like what you guys do with awnings but that's all they do they don't do any blasting they don't do any powder coating they, they just build awnings let's say and so my first thing would, when they would bring a project to me, it'd be like, is this going outside? And they say, yes. And I would say, okay, then I think we need to blast it because it, the powder is going to last way longer outside. If we blast it, cause we have way better adhesion. And sometimes they'll say, no, I don't want to do that because I know it's going to cost more or whatever, or I quote it and they don't want the blasting. And so then I just tell them, well, just so you know, after about a year, it's a pretty high chance that powder is going to start flaking off in some areas. If this is sitting outside, in weather conditions all year round because you don't have very good adhesion
3: adhering to that mill scale and the mill scale is just going to flake off
0: correct yep and you can Uh and you know that by um because like sometimes customers will complain about that exact thing that you said and say the powder's falling off and all you have to do is look at the back side of the powder coating chip that fell off and if it's metal that you're looking at then mill scale came off the powder didn't really come off. The powder did its job. It stuck to the substrate since the mill scale started flaking off.
3: Yeah, man. I, I definitely understand what you're I've been in the welder for over 30 years, so yeah. <laughs> it, when that mill scale pops off and no matter what you put on there, if you don't get that off first, paint, powder, don't make it just gonna come off. Yeah, definitely. Aluminum. What should we be doing to, specifically for aluminum?
0: So on pre-treatment on aluminum, um, very similar to the steps that we've already talked about. So, Usually aluminum's not quite as dirty as steel. Um, right, but correct. it correct. still uh, there can still be some real oily aluminum depending on where it's coming from and how it was cut and stuff. So you could decrease that first if needed and then rinse. And then we use a strong acid. So you're not going to use phosphate on aluminum because the phosphate chemical turns into iron phosphate, the coating. So you have to have iron in the substrate make that chemical reaction happen so since aluminum does not have iron then phosphate does no good you're not going to make iron phosphate it's just phosphate's gonna clean the part a little bit and then just like dry and sit there essentially or you could rinse it off Um, so we use a strong acid on aluminum to try to etch it a little bit typically aluminum is smoother than steel uh so it's harder to get powder coating to stick to it if you're right. just going straight over the top with no chemical so we use a strong acid to etch it you're not going to feel the etching by hand it's happened at the microscopic level um and it's also like deoxidizing the aluminum so if you do have aluminum that sat outside for a long time or had water in between aluminum sheets aluminum okay. does oxidize it's that's how it ru- it rusts and it's not orange it's white or goes all the way to black sometimes yeah so mm-hmm. The strong acid has some deoxidizing additives into it and so that helps kind of get the aluminum clean essentially and get it ready to receive a coating and typically the pre-treatment chemical that you're going to use to actually build a conversion coating on aluminum is zirconium and Calvary has all different kinds of zirconium depending on how you're going to put it on Um, but that's what we typically do for aluminum so we're going to if it's really greasy degrease it rinse it use a strong acid which cavalry carries um rinse it again and then you put your zirconium on Hmm. and zirconium builds a coating just like phosphate does on steel zirconium can be used on aluminum and steel um so or steel yeah that may be a better option for you guys is to just uh do zirconium instead of Phosphates. What
3: does is, it do for the steel?
0: I'm sorry. What did you say?
3: What does it do for the steel, zirconium?
0: Same thing. So, uh, same thing as what um, iron phosphate would. It's just a different type of chemical. We can get that
3: for both.
0: You could use that for both. Yeah. Typically, zirconiums aren't quite as good, or they don't formulate them to be as good of cleaners. Uh, so, okay. So um a lot of the time if somebody wants to use zirconium on steel they do the entire process that we already talked about including phosphate then they rinse it and then put zirconium on last okay. to get okay. to get a even better pretreatment. so essentially like the phosphate's going to lay a coating on there but there's going to be some voids in it it's not gonna be perfect the zirconium would like fill in those voids to give you you know, so then when you look at it under a microscope, you're, now you're like, oh yeah, now it's a really good conversion coating and there's, I can't see any metal or technically underneath. Um, cause Would you,
3: that be good enough to cover like minor, say, you know, 120 grit scratches?
0: It's not going to fill the scratches, no. So we're okay. not, we're not, okay, not talking. Yeah. Any of the pre-treatment coatings that we talk about, you, it's definitely not going to be that thick. You're not going to see them. So. Uh, you're going to see, the only way you're going to tell that phosphate's on a steel part is it usually starts to turn blue or a little bit purple, sometimes goldish. Um, zirconium, it doesn't turn the steel any color. Uh, there are some additives I think they can put in to, to make it turn the steel a little bit of color. But like on aluminum, you don't see the zirconium. You just have to make sure that you have a really good process and that the operators are following it so the whole part's getting
3: pretreated. Okay. Is there a pre-treatment for aluminum kind of like that would do the same as like, um, give me an example, like sandblasting. Say you got a part that is scratched with aluminum. When you sandblast over that, even though it's still scratched, it kind of just fades away because of the texturing issue, I guess. Is there any etching material that would do that as well, or is that only going to come from powder coat?
0: Uh, so you're saying to, to get rid of the scratch so you don't see it when it comes after you coat over yeah. top of it?
3: So if right. The sandblasting doesn't really get rid of it, but it just kind of gives more of an even coat all across the aluminum and just kind of gives the appearance
0: correct, the scratch,
3: right? Yep. It blends it in,
0: yeah. So, we do a lot of um just pre treat powder coat on aluminum, um, not very much blasting on, okay uh, on aluminum. And so, to get rid of those deep scratches, we sand them out with a DA, yeah. yep, okay. So we had, what I we do a lot of DA sanding. I think people would be surprised how much DA sanding that we do.
3: That's no a huge. Oh uh, no, no. Everything we do is aluminum, man, and it gets scratched so easy, yes, right? So absolutely, yes. And most of our stuff isn't even powder coated, you know, a lot of our awning, so we have to get that stuff out. So we try to we try to blend it the best we can, but the DA is the only way and then you just gotta do the whole damn thing, you know? Right. Yep. Anyway, that's why we were trying to figure out if there's something a little faster, a little easier, but I guess it's
0: just not. It would be a really really strong acid to the point of like too dangerous to work with probably if if it was going to be etching that much.
1: Okay.
2: So the acid that you were saying for the aluminum um is the PPE the same? Yeah. Or do we need to have yeah. something new? Okay. Yep, it'd okay. be the same.
0: When I say strong acid, I guess um it's just like on the pH scale it's it's even lower. So like usually a phosphate oh, okay. usually a phosphate yeah. goes on around uh five to seven pH probably. And so like a stronger acid is going to be down two and a half to four pH. So it's just more acidic, more aggressive. Okay.
2: Okay. I just when you said strong acid, I was, you know, wasn't sure what you meant by that.
0: And then, and then, um, when you get into something like a strong acid that works really good on aluminum, you wouldn't be able to use that on steel. Uh, because since it's so acidic, it would rust the steel immediately. So right when you yeah. put it on the steel, immediately it would just flash rust and then realistically you should blast all that off essentially before you went forward if you accidentally used the wrong <laughs> chemical and rusted it.
2: We've definitely been in that issue before. <laughs>
0: okay,
2: very cool. Um, one of the questions I have um, just in the last few months, uh, we've kind of been just playing around with different uh, powder suppliers and really haven't found one that, is living up to its um, standards, I guess. What do you have a specific powder supplier you use?
0: Uh, like, we we use a lot of the them, I guess. Okay. I guess. Um. But what what are the problems? I guess is it that the powder is so bad, just thinking, or?
2: well, it's like almost so lately. Like I said, we've been just trying different different companies just to see you know what the best result is and um so this one company we've tried recently we've just seen a lot of specs like you know okay. in our black it'll be specs of white or orange or i mean just random random okay. color so far i mean like i said we were just trying different ones just to you know see if there was other options and that was an issue we had with them we have been using um, oh. um which yeah. we we've had pretty good luck with Occasionally we have some weird, you know, situations, but for the most part they've been okay.
0: Yeah. Um, out so of, out of everybody, the the um, uh the highest quality is
2: um, Okay. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: in general, the highest quality powder is going to be the most expensive, and that's the case, yeah. right, with them. Uh, yeah. They're definitely yeah. by far more expensive.
2: Oh, they're like triple.
0: <laughs> but um yeah. from a lot of okay. other manufacturers, we will catch that there are specs but and things yeah. like that but we're looking extremely close with really high power flashlights and most people would just like let it go they wouldn't even see it but the one thing um well whenever you bring up specs to a powder rep immediately they you know they go, go after your system so I guess yeah, what I would say yeah. in terms of color changes and things because when we first started we had specs and like like white is one that you can get specs in a lot and we thought it was the powder. And it wasn't, it was just that we weren't doing a good enough job. But what we found was that, you know, if you're doing a color change, obviously make sure you're blowing it out really well. And you're like actually taking apart the pump and stuff. Uh, I'm not familiar with the guns that you guys utilize. So I'm not sure how all the pieces that come apart on it or how far you can take it apart. But the one thing that really helps is to have different hoses, which maybe you guys do have. But like for white, we have a specific hose for just white. Um, oh my
2: gosh that's so smart <laughs> Why did we think of that?
3: okay what gun since we're gonna bleed most of this out what what actual sprayer do you use that you find is better uh we, I mean, I think we, we've only
0: yeah we use uh gima so those are the yellow ones that you see uh norton makes a good gun uh, i believe wagner makes um some as well i've never had much experience with the ones that you can buy on the internet um the problem, I think the biggest issue that you would probably run into or the biggest differences, like obviously the ones, the name brand ones are way more expensive, like thousands of dollars, more expensive. Um, they're both, no matter what, how expensive or how cheap it is, you're going to have air flowing to it and some air regulators on there that you're adjusting to adjust the powder output and how much powder is getting sucked up out of the box and going down the line. That's, you know anybody can kind of do that essentially right it could be fancy and have a digital lcd that you're adjusting on or it could just be little regulators that you're turning Um, the expensive part and the reason why the name brand ones are so much more expensive than some of the ones that you can get off of amazon or something is the charging capability so where all the expense comes in is how it's actually charging the powder and how hard it can charge the powder meaning like how good it can make the powder stick or how good the transfer efficiency essentially can be. Um, so you're not wasting as much powder or so you could powder coat faster and not have to do as many passes to build the same amount of film thickness, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no it, it does. Does. So, so if I was going to recommend one, our most experiences with GEMA, so I would say just get a, get a GEMA and then, you know. And that's the one we had. Um,
2: so we were just, I mean, Like I said, when we took over, we weren't really sure what was, you know, what was the best out there like that. We're just kind of, you know, trying to trying to find our way through this all.
0: Um, we have a dealer that we work with that sells schema. It's called Spray Equipment. I think they're more mostly a midwestern company, and they are in a couple. Like they have a thing in Omaha, Nebraska, and they have one in Kansas. I would assume. That there's a company similar to that around your guys' area that's kind of a dealer for powder coating parts, and maybe they would be able to um, work with you yeah. a, a little better. You know, I don't know if you're going like straight to manufacturer or or whatnot, but
2: we were, yeah. yeah.
0: For the the one big thing that I think is really really important, and if you've read some of the blogs or listened to some of our content, you probably have come across it is the quality of compressed air um that you're actually taking all the way to the powder booth Uh, also if you're blowing parts off after pre-treatment you want it to be clean you don't want to have oil in it Um, but it's really important for powder that you have really dry and oil-free air Um, so you sent me some pictures and you've got you it looks like you've got a that eaton compressor is your bigger one and that one looks like it probably runs your blast operation or it goes to your blast yep. pot. Yeah. And then there's that Ingersoll Rand tan one that kinda of stands next to it. And that one supplies air to the powder booth. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So uh so those are two different kind of compressors. The Eaton is gonna be like a rotary screw. So that mixes oil with the air. So um you typically have really oily air coming out of a rotary screw compressor which is like the same type of air compressor we use we use a different brand but this we use a rotary screw for blasting um but that oil coming out it's very or that air coming out is very oily so you want to make sure that you filter that really well um that Ingersoll rand one that you have standing up that's a reciprocating compressor so that one is just like it has the piston up on top and that's how it compresses the air so that really doesn't have much oil because you're just mostly you're just compressing air essentially, um, but that gets the air very 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 hot. So then usually you have some condensation issues, uh, meaning okay. that the air the, the air that you're going all the way to the powder gun. If you don't dry it anywhere, then you probably have some moisture, and so then that would be like it could create some clumping. But but what you would see curing out could be just like weird random fish eyes or or craters or something like that
3: okay
1: so i don't know i
0: didn't get to see like any pictures of filters or anything but um that would be something that
3: it's just got one basic set of filters right at the booth and they probably honestly have never been it's never been before. Well,
0: is there months. any like i know that there's a dryer um because you sent a picture of that but that looks like that came off of the 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 eaten portion so i you still should definitely look into some sort of dryer and it would be a tinier one because you don't you're not there's not that much cfm coming out of that angersault ran compressor um and you don't really need that much cfm at for spraying powder like a powder gun only takes like eight cfm or something like that um so the dryer could be small but that would be something probably beneficial to look into because you basically nothing's gonna get the wa- the water out of that really hot air coming out of the Ingersoll Rand compressor like a filter a filter trap is gonna just get a little bit of water out, but if you don't have a dryer, you're not actually getting the um all the moisture out of the air I guess you're not getting the humidity out of the air would be the best way to put it and uh I have a question
2: for kv and ua
0: our machine has a kv but it also has a ua okay so uh, kv is the voltage and it's kilovolts so the k stands for a thousand so whatever is reading on the screen it's times a thousand and then ua is microamps so anytime that we're dealing with uh electricity uh, voltage and amperage um so For like a straight analogy to just regular electricity uh this is about the easiest way to think about it and then we'll kind of translate it to what it's doing in the booth so if you're running electricity down a wire in your house to power your light um voltage is what is pushing the power the electricity down the line so you have high voltage at at one end let's say and that actually it's like the difference in voltage between the two ends of the wire is what's pushing the uh electricity through and then the amperage is the actual current that's flowing through the wire so when we're in the powder booth and you have your kvs and microamps the Nortons and Gemas and wagner's they have them set up so you have both those setting options but when you start spraying powder it's it'll actually auto vary them a little bit to kind of even them out i'm guessing not the cheaper version guns don't do that but um if you turn your kv like uh, a game will go up to 100 kv i don't so low i'm just gonna use that for example i'm not sure how high your guys's goes probably 100. um so that's your max voltage and then you go up to 100 micro amps the u stands for micro So hundred microamps. And so now you're at max voltage and max amperage. Um, so you're going to charge the powder really, really hard. And generally when you do that, it's probably going to back ionize, meaning that you're going to get so much charge on the part that the powder doesn't have really anywhere to land consistently. And so then it just starts dancing around. It makes those little snowflakes on the part. Um, on the flip side, if you turn them both way down then the powder doesn't really like to stick to the part hardly at all because there's no charge anymore so it's not you know it's just like throwing powder at the part by hand Um, so typically if you turn let's say you turn kv all the way up to 100 you can think about that you're kind of when you pull the trigger on the gun you're creating electric field between the gun and the part so if you have really really high kv you're creating a strong field so the powder has a direct, a good way, kind of a direct path to the part, and you have a big potential difference to kind of like push the powder. And then the microamps is kind of like the charge that the powder is actually carrying with it and gonna kind of hold with it when it sticks on the part and keep it on the part, if you will. Um, so it really depends on the part and the scenario. And how the particular gun is working, where you need to dial those in, but in general, I wouldn't put those up at full max because usually that's just hard to as an operator to not overcharge the part. Um, a lot of time, kind of keep the voltage somewhat high. So let's again, I don't know how is, is hundred kV? Is that what yours guys goes up to, or what? What's the what does it let Pretty. you go up to?
2: Normally, I'm running like forty kV and. In- one of them one of the machines stuck on 56 ua but the other one i try to run around 40 kV and
0: 20 ua that would that'd be probably about right again when we talk about different units that could be totally different right like 40 kV and 20 ua on a GEMA could be different than it shouldn't be but it could be if you go to a different brand just depending on the parts that are inside right but but yeah, I would say that that would be reasonable. And if you're not getting powder to stick, then you need to turn them both up probably. Um and then if you're if you're getting uh like Faraday cages or like corners where powder won't suck in because of the charge and it just won't go, like they just it coats everything but the little little tight corner, then you need to start pulling usually microamps the UA down first um and then you could start bringing kv down if that doesn't work but usually to get in a tight area if you pull the ua down um it'll start getting into that tighter area better
2: okay awesome so it might be worth just to
3: invest
2: in a new gemma, gemma whatever you want to call it yeah these are just yeah i mean we were yeah i mean we're just trying to get by crazy,
0: but yeah. yeah and I, like i said i i think that uh i don't think that you're at a huge Or to anybody out there that's using a cheaper version from wherever you can buy it i don't think you had a huge disadvantage because like i said the moving the powder through the gun is just air and nobody's really doing that any different just you just do it um, with regulators it's just the charging portion and um i i don't know i can't say for sure but my guess is that you'd be able to get a smoother not as orange peeled finish with a more expensive gun, um, still being able to, but being able to go even faster than what you are now. Cause it, I think you since that it auto varies the voltage in microamps, it allows you to run higher. Um, but it like makes up for if your gun to part distance is not quite right. So it, it, it kind of helps you from overcharging the part on accident. So it's a little more, operator-friendly, I guess. It gives you more room for air. Okay. And, like, if you were using a GEMA, I literally could... Not that it matters, or that you would need it, but if you were having a problem, like, Jace, we have this really crazy um, thing that we welded up that we don't normally do, and there's a ton of recesses, and we can't get the powder to suck in, and we have to do 200 of these. And we just did the first one, and it took two hours to get it all covered. I could be like... Just set your settings to this, and that'll work. You know, because because I, since it's the same unit, I could just be like, I know that this will work. I know this will suck into corners, so just use these settings, and then and then it should work. Right.
3: Cool. And like you said, I had the warranty lasted five years. I had to use it five years. Well, five years. and that's
2: the thing; it wasn't used for five years. That's what sucked about it. <laughs> yeah, that's what made it so mad. All right. Cool. All right, well, cool, man. But well, thank you. You guys, have anything
3: else? No, he's answered. I
2: mean, everything we have. I mean, I mean, we kind of were on the right track with everything. It was just a matter of confirming yeah. some of our.
0: What do you guys use for PPE in the powder booth?
2: Powder booth I is where wear, uh, a a full face mask, and his sock for his head. Yeah, Well, I got you jumpsuits. You know, I don't see you wearing them. A- no. The- yeah, uh, yeah 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 yeah
0: definitely yeah. definitely need to wear a full tie back suit. I know that it's hot, but do you guys spray a lot of different colors or you just spray one color all day long? all
3: different,
2: all different. yeah, I mean yeah. we have like stock colors that we do like more often, but we're at this point now we're starting to get more so, so it's a so,
0: variety. um if you're spraying a lot of different colors and you're not like changing your clothes since you're not wearing a suit you very easily could be contaminated like that's where some of your specs could also oh, be coming from
2: that. so okay okay so now do you do like i saw one of your videos like it was like a closet of high-back suits like do you have a suit for like every color basically or do you just
0: yeah have so, that kind yeah. Of
2: work?
0: yeah because again like the the color contamination is um you know a huge problem with powder and so since you yeah. were saying that you had a lot of problems with specs and powder on the one hand we've had problems with specs and powder and it literally was in the box and we could prove that by spraying sample panels and and making sure so like if we're spraying w- white all morning and then we're switching to red he's wearing his white suit in the morning and then his red one in the afternoon and obviously okay. like after he's use it for a while and 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 sweated like crazy in it we throw it out and get another one out it's not like we use one white white suit all year but yeah we're we wouldn't like spray white in one suit and then go in and spray black in the in the same suit because you have still no matter how good a job you do blowing yourself off even if you had a white even if you had a suit on you still have white powder all over your suit and it's just going right on the black when you're reaching over it you know you just move and the powder booth's running. It's just any powder that pops off of you just immediately pulls right across the never part.
3: Genius.
0: So yeah, but I, the see, it, I knew
2: it, we were missing little things.
0: It's, and it's obviously things. extremely hot to wear one. I get that. You know, the, it is, it's yeah. you know when it's 100 degrees in the shop, then you're sweating like crazy. Um, yeah. But but if you're sweating like crazy and you don't have a suit on, all the powders just sticking directly to you, so you're never getting that off the rest of the day as you spray other colors. Cause it's just caked <laughs> on your skin.
2: Yeah. Okay. So wear your suit, Mason. <laughs> we'll do it.
0: We'll do a whole week of content on just wearing powder suits. So you can yeah, walk, see suits. you can watch
2: well, it. The it dawned on me is cause you did like a video on, and it was literally a closet full of different powder suits. So I never, honestly, we never even thought of that. Like at all, like, it's something so small, but it makes a huge difference. And then
0: full-face full respirator is great because that keeps the powder out of your eyes. That's what we use. And then the filters that you use in the powder booth, they don't have to be um, – they can be the same ones that you use in pre treatment, but they don't have to be actually that good because you're not trying to filter out any vapor or anything. It's just you're filtering out dust. So it just needs to be some sort of particulate filter that goes for on the full-face. Okay.
2: Yeah, we use the charcoal ones, right?
0: Which you can, but there's yeah. nothing. You're not, you know, it's just dust. So you're not trying, because like charcoal is going to get rid of all of the papers. Buy-
2: okay, so we could buy something different for just that booth. If okay. you
0: wanted to. And usually yeah. the ones that are part just like for a particulate, it's essentially like a dust mask, but it's in a cartridge form. Those ones are usually right. a little cheaper, but it's it's, yeah, pr- it's probably yeah. negligible. So it it's not like you're doing okay. anything wrong by having a a more sophisticated filter in the powder booth. I mean yeah. that's fine. Okay. Fair enough. Gosh, little
2: things yeah. make difference.
0: And then when you're doing your uh going back to the air and if you guys do uh get a dryer for that Ingersoll uh Ingersoll Rand, um, then you you still wanna have some decent filters. Um, so usually, uh, if you just like Google, like Ingersoll Rand has all kinds of air filters you can get, but, um, I usually do like two stages of air filters. Usually one is like one micron, which is like the size of filter. Um, and that knocks out like really big, heavy stuff essentially, and gets most of uh, oil, um, and then there's 0.01 micron, which is a finer one. So I usually use that as like two stages. Um, and so like after it comes, usually before it goes into the dryer, they use the one micron. So like comes out of the compressor and hits a filter before it goes into the dryer because that way we're filtering out any like pieces of rust or something that's coming out of the air tank um, so it doesn't hit go into the dryer and mess it up. Um, and then once it comes out of the dryer and usually the dryer is right next to the air compressor. So then you have a lot of air line before you get to the booth. And so then when we get to the booth, I usually put another filter and that's the fine one, the 0.01 micron as like, that's the last filter before we take the air on into the actual, uh, powder gun. Okay. Which if you didn't want to get a dryer, I guess you could do a. I think that there's some things that have like the little desiccant beads in them. Those don't work nearly as good as an actual dryer, but they're a lot cheaper. Is that? Oh,
2: okay.
0: What do you guys like? What are common things when it's coming out of the oven? when you look at it, like, do you have any, do you have issues with fish eyes and craters and powder flaking off or?
3: Uh,
2: I've been working on the kv I haven't had much fish eyes, but I've been having an orange feel. It's kind of just a normal now. Okay. It's super
0: bad, but it's just there. And sometimes that depends on the actual powder. So, like, typically, like, doesn't it lays a lot smoother than a coating that's a third the cost or whatever, uh, because it's just formulated way better and has better raw materials. But then also, um, gun to part distance is really important for orange peel so all of the videos that you see uh, on the internet of everybody that are spraying their wheels fancy colors and they have the gun like a half an inch from the part that's way too close so you want to be like four to six inches back is where the gun should be so you want to be significantly away usually every time you see people spraying and even our sprayers in our booths they start to wander too close and i always tell them to back up because you're uh exaggerating if you touch the gun to the part like you're just putting charge right onto the metal so there's no way that the powder going to lay smooth so the farther that you can pull back and still be getting powder to the part and not being like ridiculously far away um it's going to lay smoother because you're not overcharging the surface. Okay.
1: Interesting. Okay.
3: Do so you guys use the the flashlight on the Gemini gun, the option for that?
0: The what? The fast... so
3: Gemini, the new guns, they actually have flashlights on them. I was wondering if that was an option you guys, do you all actually use that? Gemma, I'm sorry, I said Gemini. Gemma. <laughs> Gemma, uh-
0: Gemma. That's fine. I don't. I haven't seen. I haven't seen that there's an option for a, a flashlight from the factory. But I will have to look at that. We usually don't use a flashlight, but on some of the things that we spray, where it's like a big frame and you can't really see what you're doing because you have to get underneath of it, then we just like attach our own flashlight to the top of the gun. I haven't do seen. I haven't seen it have, come stock.
3: Do you have side lights in your booth?
0: No, just from the ceiling I wish we had some in the side but we just have them from the ceiling
3: yeah ours is just in the top too and yeah. I was wondering because my buddy has a car painting booth and his has lights all the way down both sides the top yeah, everywhere I was wondering man
0: yeah that would be helpful I wish ours did have some on the side
3: okay
2: um my last question um and I mean obviously we live in totally different areas But I think one of my struggles, just because I'm on the accounting end and the administration end, is you know we kind of have a price point for you know our services. But I mean, as much as you know, I mean you know you don't always (laughs) account for you know the oh crap moments or you know this took two hours, three hours longer than you know you originally anticipated or how are you like how are you kind of generalizing when you when you price out jobs if that makes sense
0: yeah i mean obviously if you have to rework something then that's you're not going to make money on that job obviously
1: right. um right
0: so you kind of just and then if you priced everything as if you were going to have to rework it then you would never get any work right so you can, right. you know right. but basically After you've done it for a while, which I think you guys have probably done it long enough, you pretty much know like roughly how long something should take or like something that size when it takes about this long. And then you just have to take into account what your guys' business expenses are um, in terms of everything like all your everything that goes into running your business and try to divide that out over how much work you guys do. I mean, since you get to do the fabrication and welding that should help um yeah you don't have to charge maybe as much per hour for power coding as we do just because that's all we do we don't have anything else that's bringing in revenue um but yeah it's just basically everyone's gonna be different on their overhead and what their operating costs are per hour right. but, but the key is to be pretty darn good or, or have keep good notes of how long it takes to do things so that way when you go to quote the next job you can be like well I'm pretty certain that this is going to take three hours and maybe it'll take three hours and 20 minutes, or maybe I'll get lucky and it'll take two hours and 45 minutes. But hopefully when you think it's going to take three hours, it doesn't take 12 hours, you know, cause then. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. So now you, most of your stuff is pretty industrial. Like you do a lot of, you know, you have a lot of bigger contracts, like you're doing a lot of the same item at once. Um, so like one of the things that we've encountered is, you know, people will drop off things and, you know, they say, or they, you know, when they, when we first see the items, it's one thing, but then when we start taking it apart, you know, it turns into more than what we originally thought. Have you ever run into that where, I mean, I'm, I guess my question is, is, you know, do you have requirements of, you know, if, if you're doing a um, a custom job, you know does the the product have to be stripped or completely disassembled or kind of like what are your requirements for drop-off
0: when we first started i really didn't give any requirements but then you're right you run into a situation where somebody brings something that so and it's not necessarily the customer's fault they don't know that like Oh, this needs to be taken apart so the job can be right. done right. So they bring it to you, right. and um, you know, you're just not experienced enough yet, or weren't thinking about it, and you quote it, and then you realize like, oh, actually, that's going to take an hour to take this apart, an hour to put it back together, and I, that's not in the quote. So, on the one hand, you can call a customer and tell them like, we haven't started yet. I needed to tell you now that it's going to cost this much to disassemble it and this much to reassemble. Um, usually that frustrates customers cause you already gave them a quote and now you're going back and give them a different one, but some will right. work, some will work with you. And if you haven't started on yeah. it and they don't like the price, they can come pick it up. Um, so right. originally, uh, that's kind of how I would do it. We've gotten to the point where we're so busy that we literally don't have the manpower to be taking stuff apart and putting it back together. Um, because we just need to be focusing on blasting and powder coating. So now we always specify like, um, you know, no disassembly or assembly and quote, all non-metal parts need to be removed. Um, okay. and, and we miss out on doing uh, general, what I would call general public work, like lawn furniture and car parts and things like that, because the customer doesn't necessarily know how to take it apart or they don't want to take it apart. But since right. we refuse to do it, then that just take it to somebody else that will take it apart and put it back together. Um, but for us right now, that just works the best for us because we literally, yeah. it just takes too much time. So you could choose either right. way. But yeah, you definitely need to quote accordingly. And then, yeah, yeah. I try to, you know.
2: It's so hard. You some, know, yeah, sometimes and, people don't even realize, you yeah.
0: know? And when it, and it still happens sometimes, I'll quote it. You Know, I, I try to get pictures of everything if I can. Yeah. Nowadays, almost everybody yeah. has a smartphone so they can at least text right. you or email you a picture. Because if you,
2: and that's what we have started doing, yeah. is getting pictures
0: prior. Because almost without exception, even to this day, if I just quote something over the phone and don't ask for a picture because I think I know what they're talking about because they're describing it like something that we've done a hundred times and then they drop it off. I'm like, Oh, I should have asked for a picture. Cause this is
2: <laughs> way more yep. sophisticated. Every time, yeah. Yeah. So
0: pictures really help because that shows you the current state. And then right away you can be like, Oh, well, if you want us to disassemble and reassemble it, you know, it's going to double the price or, so, you know, if there's, if yeah. it's that involved. You can
2: for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: The, wor- the worst yeah, is definitely- if you actually dive into it. And you, yeah. and you don't say anything because at that point yeah. then you just i mean you can't after the fact you can i guess if you want but you can't really when you get done be like oh yeah we took it apart and put it back together and so now it's this much extra because that's just right not really fair if they no
2: they, it's they, not they, no and i mean we've we've come into you know we've just had some jobs where you know it's been kind of thrown in our laps and
0: so you guys are you know, so you build you build the awnings but you're you're trying. You also just want to do like just straight powder coating for people as well. Yeah. Like you're gonna powder coat your own yeah. stuff, but you also want to powder coat other things. Is that yeah? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we
2: like I said we we've teamed up with um kind of some other companies that you know were going to one place and it was just so far away that you know they stopped in with us and you know we're starting to get more of their work and so you know we just want to be more. Um, efficient, and we want to put out a quality product. You know what I mean, and we want to do it safely.
0: And um, yeah, I think you guys are on the right track from everything that you said. I think you got the. Um, you're asking really good questions, and honestly, have a lot more knowledge than um, I thought you were going to have. Just be, you know, when you because re- when somebody reaches out randomly, you know, I thought maybe yeah, you guys I- are just starting, but you guys have obviously already been doing it and know roughly how you got to do it to get a good finished part, right? Yeah. I mean, we've
2: been doing a lot of research and reading and... I would say the biggest
0: biggest thing is if you're going to... When you're doing your own stuff, you got a lot more control and um, it's your own product that you're putting out. So you can, I guess, decide to cut corners if you want or whatever. Um, or like if you're welding the stuff together, you can keep it cleaner and, and all that stuff. But when you're starting to do a lot of metals for other people and they just bring it in and you're coating it and send it back out, the pre-treatment is probably the biggest thing that you need to focus on. Um, just because I, I think that if you're not getting stuff clean, basically, that's where you probably, you could have your biggest like, Oh crap um issues (laughs) where someone sends you a picture and like a one foot by one foot square of powder just flaked off you know because because it just for whatever reason it didn't get clean um and then i mean that's horrible you know that will feel horrible if that happens yeah so yeah i would say that for any you know we talked a lot about you know gima and norton and but that's You know is that a better unit than what you currently have yeah probably in the long run but is that gonna immediately step up the quality of product that's going out the door probably not if you're able to get the powder on there now and you're reasonably happy with how it looks probably going and buying the next gun is not really gonna make a vast improvement in what's happening it's probably more of the pre-treatment wood and the dryer and and yeah just making sure that your air is clean because no matter what powder gun you're using if the air's is not 100 percent clean you're just you're still gonna that's gonna come through anything so you guys do blasting too yeah. or have yeah. the capability yeah so when do you do it that like all the time or only every on certain jobs or
2: um pretty much every day, much every day.
0: okay you do that yeah I mean, do you have a booth or is that you are yeah. you able to do that outside or
3: we have a converted booth. a connex into a booth
0: sweet okay and then, what type of uh, these, media or grit do you use?
2: Jet mag, which we've actually been trying to look into other medias. Um, the supplier. What do you call it? It's called Jet, Jet, mag. Jet mag.
0: Okay, I'm not Have sure what heard of is. it is. That must yeah, be a name so, brand. That's probably a name brand. Do you know what it is, it is. actually?
2: Yeah. So, it's um. Oh gosh. What I, color is? On,
0: what color is it? it?
2: Black it's black okay
0: so probably like garnet it's like
2: an oxide no it's not garnet it is it's like a special formulated oh gosh you're gonna have it's like a black
3: coal slag. slag Diamond's the name brand maybe
2: no that's yeah. different too yeah it's its own thing like it okay yeah um it's some kind of oxide um so we've been using that, but then all of a sudden our supplier like pulled out of our local area. So now we have to get it shipped from Ohio, which sucks because yeah. it's like the shipping is the same price of the pallet. Yeah. <laughs> so, we've been trying to like look into other medias, but unfortunately they're not as good. So we're going to have to bite the bullet regardless. Do you guys not do a lot of sandblasting?
0: No, no, we do a lot. So our we have a huge blast booth. Um, and the main grit that we use is steel grit.
2: Steel grit.
0: Yeah. Huh. But that probably wouldn't work that great in the Connex. Do you guys reuse the jet mag? Yeah,
2: we well, can. Yeah. Four time. About four times.
0: Okay. Yeah. Before so this, it
2: kind of, you know, it's powder.
0: Yep. And we reuse the steel grit a lot. I it guess it, it just keeps recycling, but there's, we have like an auger in the floor in the blast room. So. We just push it down in that, and then the auger takes it and puts it back in the pot. But yeah.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So when you
0: guys are, I'm trying to look up this jet mag while we're talking here, but um, do you use that on steel and aluminum?
2: Everything. Okay. Yep.
3: And it kind of leaves like a almost metallically look on the metal.
2: That. Yeah, it's like shiny. Yeah, it looks like, like sparkly. Sparkly, yeah. <laughs> what was the name of yours that you're using, the media?
0: Uh, it's just steel grit. Steel
2: grit. Yeah.
0: And then if we are blasting aluminum or stainless steel, we use crushed glass because uh, you don't want to impregnate the steel grit into aluminum uh-huh. or stainless because then it'll rust.
3: Because
0: you yeah. are putting little okay. steel specks in everywhere right and so crushed glass is not very abrasive either um so it works really good on car bodies and things to not warp them or damage them the removal rate is pretty slow because it's not very aggressive but then it um it allows you to do more delicate things i guess
2: yeah no that makes sense
0: i'll have to look that jet mag up i'm kind of looking at it right now but
2: yeah i mean that's just what we've always i mean we've it's been great like we've had really good luck with it but like i said now we just have to what pay, kind
0: of what kind pay. of like um do you know like what blast profile it gives like is it a really really rough or is it a fine profile or
2: it's more fine
0: i think okay, that's
2: yeah. good that's good um like he was saying it uh, when you do the framework if you like, with the aluminum, it it does. It makes it look, like, sparkly. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, it's it's bizarre, but it it's definitely a different finish.
3: We use the 30 to 40 grit, too.
0: Okay. Do you guys have a film thickness gauge to read? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Usually, how much do you put on a blasted piece? Do you know? I
2: try to do, like, three to four, but it tends to be around, like,
0: to three. okay when you're totally done or per coat per completely
2: done
0: okay yeah you probably uh depending on how deep the blast profile is um you probably want to be like three to five um, okay. if, if you're going over steel uh, and the reason why I say that is because if you don't get enough over the blast profile in steel, then you might have like a little bit of rust start in just random spots because this is a little too thin and the, and the coating's not covering the blast profile. Um, okay. but it, it would depend, right? So like if, if your blast profile was one mil, which your film thickness gauge won't read the blast profile straight away. Like you have to get a different attachment or get a different, um, they they have like these peel and stick methods to read the blast profile. And it's like you, um, like a press and stick thing. And you kind of like rub a, a pin across it to like make the film textured. And then you read it with a little gauge. Um, but let's just say your blast profile is like one mil. So you, you would want enough powder coating on there to fill the blast profile. So you want one mil powder to fill the blast profile and then at least another mil over top. Right, so if if your blast profile, like us at Kaser, our blast profile is usually two mils. So we want two mils of powder to fill the blast profile, and then at least at least one to go over top. So at the very minimum, we try to put on three mils over something blasted. Okay. But usually we go, that's our bottom side. So we I would say like three to five is f- for our blasted stuff. Okay. Three to five. So realistically, if you're doing a primer and a top coat, you're if you get like two if you're roughly getting two per coat, then you're end up at four, and that would be about perfect. Okay. So you say you're shooting for more, but you're having a hard time getting it what's uh why is it hard time? Like is it it takes too long to get it on there or if you try to put it on a lot, then it starts to back ionize or
2: Yeah. Like if I start to put on too much, it starts to like flake
0: off and fall off like a it's it's very weird. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that, that, this would be a good place to, to end to kind of cycle it all the way back around. So when we were talking about, uh, like GEMA versus, um, those guns that you can buy online and the price difference. And I was talking about like the main difference is the charging. Um, so the one benefit of something that that's more expensive and charging really well is that you can go faster because it's charging it harder and you can put more powder out. The other issue that you can run into is if the, if the unit can't charge the powder hard enough, as it starts, as you start to build powder on your metal part, so it's like building more and more thickness, it can only build it so thick in one coat. And then the powder literally starts to fall off because you can't charge the powder anymore because the gun's not capable but it needs more charge to stick to the part because you're like as you build powder you're insulating the metal underneath um
2: right
0: so that would be one instance where if you had a GEMA or norton like because i said earlier that if you bought one it might not really change your quality of product tomorrow this would be one right. in, this would be one instance where uh, was it Mason? Is that is Mason the one that's spraying the powder?
1: Yep, Mason. That, yeah, yeah. That,
0: this would be one instance where if you rolled that gun in right away, you would probably be like, "Wow, I can build that thicker, and it's not falling off uh, because okay. it's because the in- internals and the reason why it costs thousands of dollars more are being able to charge the powder more, so it lets you build more in one coat. Um, so wow. then, so then you could when you're shooting for the three to four, like you said, you would easily be able to do that in two coats because you'd be able to be putting more on and it wouldn't just be falling off on you.
2: Okay. One last question I had, um, when you, when you're, well, you probably don't experience this as much, but you know, we have people that bring in stuff that have already been powder coated before do you recommend completely stripping everything? Because some people are like, oh, you can just throw, you know, just powder coat right over it.
0: Yeah. My response to that is no, we can't. So we're going to blast it all off. Um, but blasting off powder takes a really long time. So
2: it does. But yeah,
0: yeah, yeah we don't, I normally okay. won't go right over the top of someone's old powder coated part because you just can't guarantee adhesion at all. You know, right. You, you, you don't could, know what yeah you could powder coat it and it could all fall off you could powder coat it and there could be a weird oil on there that you didn't know about and now it's all fish-eyed and looks terrible and then at that point you're probably gonna have to blast it anyway to make it look good right. so yeah anything that comes <laughs> anything that comes in um we won't coat right over the top we always blast all the way off we won't even coat over a part that somebody else blasted we reblast it and then powder coat it or paint it okay. um cool.
2: Yeah, I mean we've been—that's kind of what we've been doing—is telling people. But you know, you know, customers always try to tell you what you should do. Oh so. yeah, I know. Yeah. I, just, <laughs>
0: I just, I just, I go back to like, okay, we've done that before, and we frustrated a lot of customers by doing that because the powder ended up falling off right away, and so we just don't, yeah. we don't do that. And and I'll say there yeah. are other powder coders in town; they might do it for you. You could take it there, but I'm just not comfortable. I'm going to give you a bad product, and I know you're going to be frustrated. So. Yeah. Yeah. But we do okay. the one time where we will powder coat over powder coat is like in a rework scenario where we powder coated it and it's like, Oh, we have a light spot, but we're just going to have to reshoot this whole thing. Or, Oh, we got a cluster of fish eyes here. We'll sand. And that. we can do that. Yeah. We'll sand that area. We'll sand the whole thing. Cause it's, it's still on our cart. No one's really touched it. Nothing foreign has gotten on it. Cause it's just been right in our shop. So then we'll just sand it all really good and blow it off uh, and then spray another coat on it so we're comfortable doing that but once it leaves okay. our shop and comes back then i'm not really comfortable coating over it anymore
3: go back to that there the coat over it, you need to sand the whole thing over again right you rough it all up yeah
0: you need to you need to rough it all up there i've had some powder reps tell me that you don't need to on this particular chemistry of powder but if you don't scuff it all up um, then powder will flake off. I, it's, it's literally like there was one time where, uh, when we were first starting, we, our process was like, we're gonna rework it, we're gonna sand the whole thing by hand, or I guess you could do it with a DA, but you could just sand it by hand with a sanding sponge or something to give it a roughness. And then we'd coat over the top. And then I had one rep say, no, you don't need to do that. You can just power coat right over top when you're reworking. So we did that. And literally it came out of the oven and it was like falling off and the powder, the second coat or third coat, whatever it was, was falling off in sheets. I was like, okay, we're not going to do that again. So yeah, definitely scuff it hundred percent everywhere. Cause you need that after the powder has gone in and fully cured, you need, the next coat of powder is not going to stick to or blend in or gel in with that fully cured coat. You have to have some mechanical abrasion there. So there's like something to it to stick into. Otherwise this is laying straight on top. Now, if you're doing your, if you're doing your primer and your top coat, when you prime, you're just gelling it. I would assume you just put it in the oven for a couple minutes to gel it. Yeah. And then you, then you spray your top coat over top. That's great. That works well because the first coat isn't cured yet. It's still, it's just gelled. So when it heats back up, it's still gelled and the top coat just kind of mixes in with it a little bit and links together. Cross links, and then you have a good coating there but once you fully cure something then the the next layer won't mix in and melt in and cross link into it it just sits on top
2: okay
3: i, mean, to most of what I was
2: done. gonna say yeah i mean we definitely we're on the right track so
0: that's great sounds like it well hopefully awesome. you guys keep growing how, yeah, long, so how long? So how long has it been? I think you might have said, but I forgot. How long ha- since you like um, started doing the almost awnings? Almost a year. Okay, sweet.
2: Yeah. So we took over in 2021 of October. Um, and the awnings, I mean, they, they've been around for years, but the powder coating really hasn't had a chance to get off the ground. So that's what we're trying to do now is get that, get that going.
0: Yeah, I think you guys are on a really good track. You you got. Awesome. I, I, you got a lot of knowledge. I think you have more than you guys realize with just the experience they've had this far. Because you're asking really, really good questions. So it's obvious. Okay. It's obvious. But to be honest,
2: that- we were like, oh my gosh, we just feel like a bunch of morons. No. <laughs> I mean, we, re- you know, it's just been like a game of reading. And, you, you know, I hate to say it, but you don't always know if you can trust what you're reading or if you're even getting the right information. Right. Or, you know, that's the hard part nowadays is trusting what you're reading.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and even like uh, probably once a week something happens and I'm sitting there looking at a part that's cured and like, okay, what went wrong here? You know, like it just, yeah. there's there's so many different variables that, you know, stuff's going to go wrong and you're just going to have to, you're not going to know what it is no matter how much experience you have, but you, right, you, you have some around. idea of where to kind of start and then you problem solve it from there. But yeah, there's always, there's always something when you're dealing with powder coating
2: yeah it's touchy well I can't thank you enough for just taking the time to talk with us like I said we've taken some notes and hopefully we can put some of this into effect I think the biggest things we were missing was the hoses for colors that probably hoses and clothes Mason um (laughs) jumpsuit um and definitely the
0: do they make you be do they make you be clean shaven to wear your respirator
2: uh-oh
0: hey if they don't if they're we not have
2: a lot of
1: beards in our okay. shop <laughs> thank you so much i appreciate okay. it okay we'll talk so to nice you later to you nice to
0: meet you all bye so that was Really good conversation. I hopefully that will be helpful to a lot of people. I think that we covered a lot of different things. I think that we talked about some ways that people that don't have all of the equipment that a huge powder coating shop has that you can still do powder coating. Okay. It's, it's not the end of the world. If you don't have the best of everything, you definitely can make do, uh, as long as you're educated about what you're doing and you understand what the limitations of the equipment that you have. Um, you usually can work around things kind of getting back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show where we had a, a really big rework issue this summer with the cotton. We posted about that on LinkedIn and a, quite a few people chimed in with some of the issues that they had. And uh, we're just going to read through those a little bit because they're kind of funny, but also like rival the, uh, disappointment that we had with uh, our cotton problem. So, uh, tom Husis of kratos Industries said that he they had masking paper come loose in the oven and then it blew around everywhere in the oven and touched almost every surface and they didn't know about that obviously until they opened the oven doors and pulled the cart out with the parts on it and then they realized that some paper had gotten free or some masking had gotten free and the airflow in the oven had moved it everywhere and ruined all of the parts essentially. So, that actually would be probably even a little worse scenario than what we had with the cotton. Uh, Crystal West said they found a broom that was left in the oven after someone was sweeping it out, and that wasn't fun. There weren't any more bristles left. So, usually a powder coating oven runs at about 400 degrees. Uh, you might run it a little bit hotter or could be a little bit cooler if you have a lower cure powder, but uh, typically anything that's plastic is going to melt. And so usually the bristles on a broom are a lot of the times are kind of like a little plastic polymer, and um, that would definitely melt in the oven. And uh, unless probably the only thing left is if it had a steel handle, that would still be left. But anything that was plastic probably melted away pretty quickly. Phil Kelly says, when the silicone wristbands supporting charities and groups first came out, so those little colorful bands that you would wear around your wrist that. A lot of people would get made with all kinds of um for charities and in in memory of and things like that so when those first came out they discovered that they were having contamination um because the person that was hanging the parts was wearing those silicone bracelets and they figured it out because all their parts started to have really deep craters and pinholes for several weeks and they just couldn't figure out what the issue was and then they finally realized that someone was wearing these silicone bracelets and the one thing about silicone is that that is really really bad for any type of coating because it does not mix well with hardly any coating so if you have silicone on your part the powder likes to run away from that area it doesn't mix well with it once it gels in the oven it kind of runs away from it. it creates a i would usually call see it as a fish eye but you would say saying a crater so really deep probably all the way down to bare metal and they figured out that that was coming from that those silicone bracelets because the silicone residue was coming off of there so that's pretty crazy and that's that's a really good point um or a really good learning experience because if you've got anybody in your shop that's like wearing a new lotion or a moisturizer on their hand and then they're touching parts um whether it's when they're hanging or pre-treating, or let's say you've got, uh, we've had this kind of come up and didn't really cause a problem, but we were, we were safety glasses and face shield in the wash bay. And obviously those get dirty. They get chemical splashed on them. And you got to get those cleaned off so you can see, right. And, but you gotta be careful with what you're cleaning your face shield and safety glasses with, because if it's something that's not going to mix well with the powder and you have it in a spray bottle and you're just spraying it randomly throughout the shop and you're getting the mist in the air and it's landing on stuff now all of a sudden you could have a problem another big one is wd-40 or any type of lubricant like that Uh, we don't keep any type of lubricant readily available in any of our supply rooms if i do have some it's locked in a special closet so when we need it we get it out we use it and then we put it away because that can get into the air and mist, or can just be residue on something. And that can cause problems for a really long period of time uh, because it can keep popping up and keep getting on something. And uh, once that's on parts or on a piece of equipment or a tool that you're using, you can have fish eyes for days. And one of the last ones we have here, Chris Shannon saying, leaving packed parts in the yard, waiting for a collection, and the sun heats the bubble wrap up, leaving bubble marks all over. So that's something that uh, we've experienced at Kaiser. We don't use bubble wrap. We use foam. And foam will do the same thing. If, if you lay out foam in between parts and then it sits outside in the sun for a long time and gets really hot, it'll actually start transferring residue off of the foam onto metal parts. And so it doesn't necessarily like texture of the coating or like indent it or anything but you can definitely see the if you look across the finish of the part when you unpackage it like an imprint or like an oil mark and it's not something that easily wipes off it's kind of like on there it almost is it's not imprinted but it's like it's, it's like an ink stamp or something on the part itself so that's something definitely to think about uh, when you are have parts that are packaged up and you're going to set them outside usually if it sits out there for a little while like an afternoon it's not that big a deal but if it sits out there for a couple days out in the direct sunlight and it's also really hot outside the ambient temperature is high you can definitely have a problem with that so that's pretty much all we have for uh Kaiser cast episode 25 i know the Intro and outro probably a little bit boring since it was just me, but we're going to be recording uh, episode 26 here soon I think next week already so be looking for that one to be coming up But I I really hope that this episode was helpful I think we answered a lot of general questions about powder coating and got a little more In-depth than I normally do about things So hopefully it's a little more educational and kind of fills in some of the blanks that I usually Uh, don't talk about. So thanks for listening and we will be back next week.